but first I'm gonna introduce in the order in which we present. So I'll be only first and then for the only great individuals among the unfree and the oppressed are those who struggle to destroy the oppressor. These are the words of our great revolutionary ancestor Walter Rodney, who was born 81 years ago today. Mm. And when we remember Walter Rodney today, because he was one of those great individuals who struggled, who resisted. And when I think about Rodney, I think about the fact that he had three children and a wife. I think about the fact that he had his PhD in London and was a professor at the University of Barcelona in Tanzania. I'm thinking about the fact that he had a passport and he had been everywhere from London to Tanzania to Jamaica to the US. And I'm thinking about the fact that he spoke our language. Mm. He could have easily chased the bag mm. and lived a nice bourgeoisie lifestyle with his family. Mm -hmm. But instead, he chose to dedicate his life to the struggle for African liberation by becoming a Marxist pan African revolution. Mm. And as a result of his dedication to struggle, he was banned from Jamaica, surveilled by the CIA assassinated by Guyanese government at the age of 38 via a car bomb, in which the autopsy grade had ripped his body apart. But the earliest thing about it all is that many of us are in a position that Rodney wants to us. We will all be tasked with making a decision. When we in college, will we seek to serve the status quo in exchange for fiat currency, capitalist trinkets, and a life of luxury on a wretched society, on a dying planet? Who will you seek to avenge your ancestors, liberate yourselves, and future generations of humanity, and save the planet? We know what choice Rodney made. The question is now what choice we make. Hmm. And the purpose is then to hopefully slow you down a certain path. Now for the introduction. First person we'll introduce is Akinelli Moja, who is a scholar, activist, and founder member of the New African People's Organization and Malcolm as Grassroots Organization. Officially known as Baba A.K. Omoja is currently a professor of Africana Studies at Georgia State University. He is the author of the award-winning book titled We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance and the Mississippi Freedom Movement. Additionally, Baba A.K. has worked on numerous other projects such as the Black Scholar Journal, the award-winning Black Power Encyclopedia, and a special issue of the Journal Souls dedicated to Baba Matula Shakur, who just got released uh, recently. Most importantly, Baba A.K. has been an activist organizer in the New African Independence Movement for well over five decades primarily as an advocate for reparations, the release of all political prisoners, and, and solidarity with all oppressed peoples across the globe fighting for liberation. And if it wasn't for his dedication to the struggle, folks like myself would have to have a movement to join once we became so fed up with the conditions that we wanted to change. And for that, we honor and thank Barbara Moser for being here today. Pan-Africanists and I've been learning and I'm trying to uh, get involved in the liberation struggle. 
not even five minutes later, Ogie called me. <laughs> I got a call with the call that we were going to join. We had like a two-hour conversation um, just talking about the different uh, politics and I learned so much. And from that day forward, I've been working with Brother Ogie on numerous different campaigns, everything from getting a blockade on Cuba lifted to working to bring the solid home by Sasha Shakur home from the exile in Cuba to supporting the Henry Reeves Medical Brigade, which is a group of Cuban doctors aiding and training people all throughout the global south, and especially in Africa. I was in meeting, I was in the meetings with Ogie where he facilitated discussions between the National Black uh, Conference of Mayors and the Cuban diplomats. Um, in addition to the work we've done together, Ogie also is the first external relations officer for the Zimbabwe Cuban Friendship Association. Co-founder of the Mass Emphasis Children Theater Company, in which he has written over 30 plays in 13 years, which have been performed in the U.S., the Democratic Republic of Congo, Miami, and Burkina Faso. Advisor to the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Group Brigade, the first U.S. correspondent to Zimbabwe's national newspaper, The Herald, 2008-2001. Co-founder of the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, Pan-African Liberation Organization, which lasted from 1990-2007. And now, I would like for us to thank Ogie for coming back to Cornell because he actually came uh, first 30 years ago with Kwame Sray and wow. came again uh, 24 years ago. So we would like to thank him for this reunion. Without further ado, we uh, start with Ogie. As our fathers, all our ancestors, I'd like to greet everyone here today. Um, I'm a member of the New African People's Organization and Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. We always greet everyone with what Brother Bryce has on his t-shirt, on his sweatshirt. Free the land. 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 By any means necessary. I want to thank the student organizations who have invited me here today. Um, the Cadre Journal. Pan-African Student Association and other uh, revolutionary students who invited me here today. Um, coming to Cornell, I got to remember the memory of Dr. James Turner, who was one of the pioneers. I'm in the field of Africana Studies, and James Turner was one of the pioneers in our field. So I must acknowledge him. Uh, last time I was here, I got here real late in the night and I got to the airport, and as soon as I got out of the security area, there was James Turner. And I was like, you know, he's an elder. Yes, sir. And I said, well, you know, what are you doing here? He said, this is my top. So, you know, uh, I said it in a gangster type way, too. <laughs> so I want to acknowledge James Turner. I want to acknowledge my brother, Russell Rickford, who's one of the scholars I have most respect for. And also, uh, you have Carol Boyce Davies here. Yes, sir. You have uh, a sister I met when she was a student at Spelman, mm. a student activist at Spelman, Rich A. Richardson. <laughs> okay, I can tell you some stories about her, about to blow some stuff up during that time. <laughs> now, speaking on freedom land, and this whole concept has a history to it. It goes way back to the beginning of African people, at least those of us who came here as captives being in the United States. But before we get there, this whole question is difficult for many of us because 
If you were educated in the United States, you were educated with this, right? One nation under God, indivisible. I can't remember the rest. It's been a long, bad time. Okay, but we were pretty much educated that way. This was one nation under God. We weren't educated and we weren't oriented unless you had, you know, some radical parents. Like I was a parent, <laughs> you know, and a grandparent today. You know that the whole foundation of what we call the United States is settler colonialism. When you all begin with a land acknowledgement, it's challenging that narrative. This is one of the reasons people are afraid of that critical race theory, right? Which emanates from a alumni from this school. I, I should know Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the people who uh, pioneers in that field. But you know, so when we look at the origins, when we look at the foundation of what the United States is, it's a settler colony. But let's look at some other aspect. What's the beginning of our ancestors who were captured from Africa being brought to North America? Everybody begins in 1619. But in 1526, in what we now call Georgia and South Carolina, there was a Spanish colony. San Miguel de Gadolfa came to, the Spanish came first off the Pee River in South Carolina, but then within months moved to Sapelo Sound. This is what is today McIntosh County. 500 Spanish and 100 enslaved Africans right on the coast. That's the first time enslaved Africans, you know there are some people who said we was here, uh, you know, with the indigenous people long before that. But I ain't talking about that history. Because, you know, my grandmama told me and my people came from Africa, right? Mm -hmm. and, and came here and we was captive, right? So with, along with that history, people were brought there. And if, I don't know if many of y'all been to the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. Mm -hmm. It get warm. And what, what do you experience there? Mosquitoes. Many of the Spanish got malaria. Some of them died off. But then now. Africans align themselves with the indigenous folk. That's why you don't see no San Miguel de Gadolfe there now. They ran them off. They rebelled. So that's beginning of our history here. They rebelled and ran them off of that territory. For those who stayed around the period of time of the Haitian Revolution, hate that the Haitian Revolution becomes a model for many of us, of what resistance is like, what revolution is like, what we should aspire to to achieve freedom. And uh, around the time of the War of 1812, this song was created by enslaved Africans in South Carolina. It says, hail, all hail, ye African clan. They recognize themselves as people of African descent. Hell ye oppress ye African band, who toil and sweat and slavery bound, and when your health and strength are gone, are left to hunger and mourn. Let what independence be your aim, ever mindful what is what tis worth. Pledge your bodies for the prize, pledge them even higher to the skies. Arise, arise, shake off your chains. Your cause is just, so heaven ordains. Uh, to shall freedom be, be plain, raise your arms and bare your breasts. Almighty God will do the rest. Blow the clarions, 
warlike blast called every Negro from his task. Get off the damn plantation. Mm -hmm. Rest the scourge from Buckra's hand. What is, who is Buckra? Buckra is an old term for white folks, mm -hmm. right? And they, if you go to the Gullah Geechee area, some people still call them Buckras. Okay? <laughs> and they said, and drive each tyrant from the land. By this point in history, many of our ancestors had been born here, and the African principle was that where you bury your dead, that's where home is. And several generations, many of them had buried their ancestors here, and it began to identify with the territory that they had buried their dead in South Carolina, Georgia, in Alabama, Mississippi. And so uh, this song is evidence of that. Of course, we had rebellions led by Gabriel Prosser, right? Demar Vesey in South Carolina. Nat Turner, 1831 in Virginia. And of course, the Louisiana Uprising. They don't talk about that one that much. In the Louisiana Uprising, Africans captured over 25 miles of land. Starting with 100 people and the army built up to 500. Finally, the Marines overtook them. Unfortunately, the Marines got indication that, you know, from weapons being missing and stuff like that, that uh, they needed to stay there rather than go fight the Seminoles in Florida, another high point of resistance. So they stayed in Louisiana. The goal was to capture New Orleans where the arsenal was and arm Africans on both sides of the Mississippi River. But that's 1811 Louisiana slave uprising. Of course, we have what I call a quilombo heritage. Uh, I, like, I prefer the term quilombo, which is a Bantu term meaning like a warrior society, a war camp. Okay, uh, oftentimes we use the term maroon. I don't like that term as much. Maroon comes from the Spanish word cimarrones, which means a what? A runaway out. So being self-determining, I like maroon. I mean, excuse me, quilombo. In the quilombo heritage, we had in the Great Dismal Swamp, um, going from the late 1600s to the end of the Civil War, you had tens of thousands of Africans living in the Great Dismal Swamp in the southeastern part of Virginia, the northeastern part of North Carolina. And again, many of them were born there and lived free for decades in the Great Dismal Swamp. There's an image artist has of a great dismal swamp African. Of course, another major community was in Florida amongst the Africans who aligned themselves with the Seminole Indians. Uh, and of course, there were major waves of Africans who escaped from Georgia and South Carolina to Florida during this time. Of course, uh, after the American Revolution, it was estimated that Georgia and South Carolina had lost anywhere from one half to three quarters of enslaved Africans who lived there during the chaos of the war. Some of them actually traveled to Nova Scotia and to Sierra Leone with the British, but many of them escaped into Florida and to the, even the Georgia swamps. Okay, excuse me, let me go back. Abraham is one of them. He was an interpreter. Africans played a significant role in their alignment with the Seminoles as interpreters because they were 
aware of American English more so than indigenous nations. They also played roles in cultivation with rice cultivation. Uh, you see um, also they had knowledge of tropical warfare and, 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 uh, which played well into, in their engagement in Florida. The Seminoles, you know, fought three military engagements against the United States and won two of them, okay? Um, here you see John Horse, another of the Seminole leaders who led black people from uh, Oklahoma, from Indian Territory, into Texas and eventually Mexico after they found out they were going to be betrayed. Okay, another emphasis on black people, again, choosing an independent existence, a self-determining existence in this land. And how many of you have ever heard the name Tunis County? Tunis County. Tunis County was sent from New Jersey to be a manager of the Freedmen's Bureau. You heard of the Freedmen's Bureau, right? Okay, he was supposed to be a manager of the Freedmen's Bureau in, on the Georgia coast during the, uh, after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction period. He went and observed how the Freedmen's Bureau was going in South Carolina. He said, no, I don't like that alignment because, you know, black folks were being abused by the Union Army. So he set up a strategy that historian Russell Duncan calls separatism for strength, where he, on the islands of St. Catherine, Sapelo, and Osaba, he established an independent republic uh, with its own constitution, its own Supreme Court, its own legislature, its own executive branch. It was eventually overrun by the Union Army when they got wind. This was the strategy. Because you know, there was a choice the United States made at the end of the Civil War. Should you emancipate black folks and allow them to have a choice of what they want to do? Some would want to, and some did return to Africa, right? Some, like Frederick Douglass, wanted to be American citizens, but many would have chosen to have their own land and govern themselves at this point, but we were denied that right to self-determination. Um, Henry Holland Garnett, he was a minister out of New York who in 1843 called for African people to uprise against their slave masters. Um, this is what he was quoted as saying in 1850s. Uh, he was talking about the black people needed a nation. And he was asked during that time, where would this nation be? He said, if we did not form a Negro nationality in the South, I'm mistaken in the spirit of my people. This is what Henry Holland Garnett said in the 1850s. This is, a, again, a long tradition. Some people say this idea begins with the Communist Party in the 1930s. But I'm showing you that it has a long history, going way before the Communist Party in the 1930s. Here's another example. Dusa Muhammad. If you study Marcus Garvey, this is one of the mentors of Marcus Garvey, right? He was a brother from, with Nigerian and Egyptian origin. He was a journalist in England, also a thespian, okay, and an activist. Had a, a newspaper, the African and Orient, Orient Express, Okay, yes, that was his publication at that particular time. Okay, and this is one of the things he says in 1913. He called for an Afro-American army to form an Afro-American nation in the Black Belt 
other side. This is 1913. This is 15 years before the Communist Party would say something. They wouldn't say have an army, but they talked about having a nation in that territory. It's similar. Um, I, I, did, I also want to point out that this is during the time of the Mexican Revolution. You had Mexican revolutionaries calling for liberating the territory the United States occupies in that would be the northern part of Mexico, and they wanted to align with black activists who were calling for development of a black republic in the South. Again, a long history, but again, um, this is one of the reasons people don't <laughs> have this campaign against critical race theory. You know, one of the elements of reparations is, you know, we always think of money, but my colleague Nasu Saito points that any reparations program has to deal with dignity, has to deal with power, and has to deal with the truth. Because our history has been so distorted. There are so many erasures in our history. So how can we really get a true perspective of who the hell we are if we don't have the information about our history? Of course, in the 1930s, the Communist Party promoted this whole idea of a black belt territory in the South building upon many of the legacies I've talked about already. In the 1960s, though, you would have uh, an emergence of what we moderate, uh, what we call today the New African Independence Movement. And these two men next to Malcolm X, Milton Henry, who was an attorney out of Detroit, and his brother Richard Henry, later known as Mario Bedelli, they formed a group after Malcolm X's assassination called the Malcolm X Society. They were close to Malcolm and sponsored three of his major addresses in Detroit. Uh, one, message to the grassroots, another speech, ballot or bullet, third one called the last message, which was a week before his assassination. They pulled together a conference of 500 black nationalists in Detroit in 1968. And here is a picture of many of those folks on, uh, I, well, I'll talk about some of them in a second, rather than talking about I will mention that the sister <coughs> in the middle, and I'm mentioning her because she's kind of been erased from history, is Joan Franklin. She's an attorney out of Buffalo, New York, and she made this legal argument. She said that, again, what I said earlier, after emancipation, the United States had three choices it could have offered to African people, return, to Africa or another territory to become citizens of the United States or to have uh, territory in the land our ancestors were enslaved on. But it was denied them. John Franklin came up with that theory. When you saw on the end, uh, Queen Mother Moore, I don't even like to say Ottoman Moore because I knew her. We just called her Queen Mother. Yeah. Queen Mother Moore, she's known as the modern day mother of the reparations movement. They've been in the Garvey movement. They've been in the Communist Party that Dr. Uh, uh, Professor Rickford talked about today. You uh, corresponded with Rosa Parks during that time. But uh, Queen Mother Moore, she was the one that came up with the name for the group New Africa. She called it New Africa, and she was also argued that reparations should be a major part of this movement. Betty Shabazz, the widow of Malcolm X, 
was the first vice president of one of the first vice presidents of the Republic of New Africa. Baba Herman Ferguson, who was a, a New York school principal, but had developed, and Professor Rickford could tell you about this, had developed the, the liberation school that was part of Malcolm's organization, the organization of Afro-American unity. <clears throat> uh, if any of y'all know anything about Ifa, the person who struggled to uh, bring about a revival of Yoruba African traditions in the United States, uh, Nana Osergeman Adafume, who founded Oyotunji Village, which is in South Carolina today, was one of the New African leaders. Malana Karingo, who founded Kwanzaa. This was virtually a, a united front at that time of black power leaders. Amir Barak, at that time his name was Leroy Jones. Ashraf Brown wasn't at the conference, but he sent solidarity and became the first minister of defense. So this was their government. Where did I get this from? From the FBI's report <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to Congress. But it shows you the government and the different folks who were part of it at that time. Uh, Robert Williams, who was a civil rights activist who called for armed self-defense, the most vocal ad advocate for armed self-defense prior to the Black Power Movement, who had been exiled, living in Cuba, living in China. And this time he's visiting uh, Tanzania, and he accepted the offer to become the president of this new government. They identified, again, these five states, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, um, South Carolina, Alabama. Uh, they identified those states because they had the largest percentages of black people, and they also historically have been places our ancestors have been enslaved, and the economy was based upon their labor. Uh, here's Robert Williams' return to the United States in 1969. This is the press conference from that. And then in 1970, 71, it was a push to try to build and organize an organization and a movement in Mississippi. But in 1971, their office was raided by the FBI. It was a whole strategy where the FBI said they raided their office looking for a fugitive. A fugitive, they embedded <laughs> in the organization and had, had been kicked out of the organization, and the FBI knew that too. But used that as a pretext. They raided them at 4 o'clock in the morning, shot into the space. Fortunately, no one inside the space died. But unfortunately for the FBI and the police, a, a Jackson police officer was, was shot and killed and two uh, FBI, uh, FBI agent and uh, Jackson police force shot and killed. So it was a whole campaign to have them freed. And fortunately, all of them are free now. I can tell you more about it. It was actually a technicality that got them out. There were also members of Black Underground. Um, there were actually people, because of COINTELPRO, who went underground and resisted. Many of them supported this whole concept of New Africa. Many of them, it's a person you know, Asada Shakur. Many of you read her autobiography. Uh, Asada talks about when she gets her African name at a session of the Republic of New Africa. But this is what she said on the eve of her being, we didn't say she escaped in them days, you know, we said she was liberated. 
Some folks actually went in and got a side. She didn't sneak out. Some folks actually went in there and got her. And she said, how can 25 to 30 million black people in America win our liberation? Marcus Garvey, he had a dream, and his dream was we go back to Africa. Martin Luther King had his dream, and the dream was we integrate into American society. And I don't think that dream is a reality. American society has told us time and time again they don't want us. And now looking at this racist, capitalist system, I don't want to integrate into it. She said Malcolm X had his dream, and his dream was land and nationhood. And his dream became my dream. She said once the people start struggling for sovereignty, start struggling for nationhood, then the world could be a part of that fight. And she said that again on the eve of breaking out. Of course, uh, Brother Bryce mentioned when introducing me that I wrote something on Matulu Shakur. Matulu Shakur was a member of the Republic of New Africa, a citizen, I should say, of the Republic of New Africa. And here's a picture of him in Zimbabwe. They, he was also a Pan-Africanist. Here's a picture of him in China where he trained to the skill of acupuncture. So when you come to see Dopa's death, you'll find out about his history and what, how he used acupuncture to make people more self-sufficient. Another BLA member who became a New African citizen, a former Black Panther, New York 21 member along with a famous Shakur was Kowasi Balagoon, who's uh, now deceased. I have an article I wrote on him in case you're interested. As we come into contemporary times as an organization, like my New African People's Organization, Max Grassroots Movement, one of the things we promoted in the early 2000s was the Jackson Cush Plan. And that was a plan, if you see the reddish part of this uh, map, it shows you counties in Louisiana, Tennessee, but mostly along the Mississippi River that are black majority. And this could be a place that we could begin to organize black self-determination, utilizing electoral politics and also economic cooperatives. Uh, my friend and comrade Shokwe Lumumba uh, advanced that plan, ran for first city council, then for mayor, one actually one became mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, one of the vehicles he used uh, to try to mobilize the population, first in his ward as a city councilman, and later throughout the city, was the Jackson People's Assembly, which still exists and helped us lead the fight today around the water crisis, uh, takeover, attempted take, takeover by the state of Mississippi over the city and portions of the city. Uh, but it became an important vehicle. I have some, if you want to know more about that, I can send you. Now his son, uh, Shobay Antar Lumumba, is the mayor, continues that fight. Uh, but we also have groups like the New African Scouts. This is an old picture. This is the original scout troop. It really formed back in the day. All these folks are grown now. But we still have a New African Scout organization that gives our students, our students, our youth, uh, orientation about our movement. We have a camp, Camp Kumziko, that does the same thing, our own activity for youth during the summer, Camp Kumziko. And then my, my own family started the Quilombo Academic and Cultural Institute, which is an educational program. In addition, many of the schools uh, Dr. Rickford talks about in uh, We Are an African People. But again, a uh, way we talked about truth, we talked about 
um, sharing our, our narrative from one generation to the next, and also preparing the next generation of leaders. And Colombo is one way we do that. Or other organizations in the independence movement. Am I, am I running out of time yet? Okay. You got the paper, Rebuild. And so Rebuild is a newspaper, and it becomes an organ for our entire uh, independence movement. So you, you should uh, get that paper, read it. You can get it online, as well as uh, get, you know, get it from organizers here, like my good brother over there. Uh, there's an organization in that same Cush area I talked about, actually, uh, what some of the people call it the Lumumba Territory after Shokwe, the New African Investment Association that pools resources, economic and financial resources of black folks in Mississippi. Okay, and one of the things they were able to do, for instance, in a black majority county, Claiborne County, Mississippi, they had the first black-owned gas station. Uh, you know, it might seem like something simple to many of us, but it helps build a capacity. If you don't have resources, you're not going to be able to fight a fight for liberation. So I want to close with this, and this is one of my big brothers who's an ancestor now, who's a part of the movement, Geronimo Gijaga. If you don't know his story, amazing story, he was a former Special Forces Army Ranger during the Vietnam War era. And when he's released, he trains black power organizations on how to defend themselves. He said he wasn't going to just allow his people to be killed like that. And because of that, he was targeted by the FBI. He had joined the Black Panther Party, and when Huey Newton was incarcerated, he's administered defense for the Black Panther Party. So he was at a meeting in Oakland. He was under surveillance. But during the same time he's in a meeting in Oakland, he's accused of being 500 miles away murdering a white woman by the name of Carolyn Olson. Okay. When he's arrested, they couldn't get him on anything else. So they got one of their FBI informants to say he did it. The FBI informant lied on the stand, said he had no relationship to know any law enforcement organization. Okay, so the FBI knew that up as well. But it was years later through COINTEL profiles, people like a famous Shakur I mentioned earlier, Tulu Shakur, who formed a group called the National Task Force for COINTEL for Research and Litigation. We were able to discover that and then had a whole campaign to get him out of prison. But this is what he said upon his release. You can't do anything within a system that's created by the persons you are fighting against. We are a nation, and we have to begin to think like a nation. Once we begin to act, think, and move like a nation, then we will begin to solve all the problems. And that's my big brother, Geronimo Chijaga. I close. Based on, our, based on our experience, based on what we've been subjected to as African people, that cultural warfare, we wage it every second of the day. And even when we win our independence, win our total liberation, when Mother Africa is completely free, it will be a more intense struggle than it is oppressed in pursuit of liberation and dignity. Amen. There are confirmations of that. If you talk to any Eritrean who's Eritrea fighting 30 years in an armed struggle, the longest armed struggle in Africa, the women, 33% of the guerrilla fighters, more women in the guerrilla war than in modern history anywhere even in addition to Africa, they'll tell you how hard it is now as the Biden administration is breathing down their neck. 
The people of Zimbabwe can tell you they've been independent since 1980, but now with sanctions against them, now with humanitarian aid agencies using bribery against them, it is more of a challenge to remain liberated than it is to attain liberation. So um, my name is Obi Agbunda Jr. I'm 53 years old. Um, Bryce introduced me in one capacity. I'm the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association. For those of you who may not understand that correlation, I'll go into it. Um, in between 1986 and 1996, Zimbabwe sent 3,000 teachers to Cuba for training. Mm -hmm. And those teachers became the bedrock of the educational system in Zimbabwe, and today they have a 97% literacy rate. Mm -hmm. I was recruited into that organization by someone who I introduced to Dr. Omoja 20 years ago, mm -hmm. Ambassador Cosme Torres Espinosa, the highest-ranking Cuban diplomat to be deported from the United States under false charges of espionage, and the FBI admitted it as they showed him the door. So um, when I, he became the Cuban ambassador to Zimbabwe, and he said to me, my brother, I need you to join this organization if you're going to be here six months. I said, I came to Southern Africa to play a role in bridging the Cuban solidarity and camaraderie efforts in the United States, the Caribbean, the rest of the Americas, and in Southern Africa. But getting back to, and one of the things that I would urge young people on the path to liberation is do not be historically dismissive. Do not dismiss the contributions of those who came before you. Many ask us all the time, why Zimbabwe? I can say Martin Luther King. This is two years before, after pressure from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to finally come out against Vietnam, he sends Lyndon Johnson a telegram in 65, saying that if the United States establishes diplomatic ties with Southern Rhodesia, which Zimbabwe was then, they will face all-out protests in the streets. But because of the amputated narrative of the collective African experience, our greatest fighters' contributions embracing Africa are conveniently downplayed, conveniently minimized. Especially now with this new wave of plantation love, which is becoming an epidemic. So, that's one example. Those of you, one of the images in your head, when you think of the 1960s, you think of John Carlos and Tommy Smith with the Black Power Fist in Mexico. What were they protesting? The number one agenda item that that organization had is they wanted Avery Brundridge removed from the chairmanship of the International Olympic Committee because he supported Rhodesia and what's called South Africa, openly supporting apartheid. So if you talk about them in Mexico City winning a gold medal for the United States, but don't deal with their affirmation to embrace a struggle in Africa, you just bought into the amputated narrative of the African experience. Many of our greatest come to a part of development. This is Paul Robeson. He said, for the first time since I began acting, I feel that I found my place in the world, that there's something out of my own culture which I can express and perhaps help others preserve. I found out now that African natives had a definite culture long way beyond the culture of the Stone Age, an integrated thing, which is still unspoiled by Western influences. I think the Americans will be amazed to find how many of these modern dance steps are relics of African heritage. Hmm. They already knew because of the cultural imposition. But this is Paul Robeson. When they talk about him, they talk about his singing. They talk about his athleticism. 
but they don't talk about at the Fifth Pan-African Congress, the most important assembling of Africans in the 20th century, he was there with his wife, Islanda Robeson, openly letting it be known that he was going to put his career on the line. To, and by that time, he, it was his eighth year of being in an organization called the Council of African Affairs, the very first organization to have functional correspondence with the liberation movements in what's called South Africa. No. Malcolm X deals with the biological question, one of his funniest st statements of all time, just because a, kitten is born, a cat has kittens in the oven doesn't make it biscuits. And human beings are the only species on the planet where you're born is where you're from. So you're supposed to tell children that history and culture takes a backseat to a birth certificate. One of the biggest challenges we have as African people in the struggle against imperialism and all its manifestations and all its forms is making sure that our cultural and political expression are synonymous. They must go together. If you have revolutionary cultural expression but reactionary, cowardly political expression, then you send wrong messages to our people, a wave of confusion, if you will, being polite because of where I'm at. Or vice versa, you have political expression, but your cultural expression leaves a lot to be desired. Catherine Dunham did more to teach us about the Haitian Revolution through dance, more to teach us about Africa through dance. And at the age of 84, went on a 40-day hunger strike protesting U.S. policy on Haiti. So it wasn't just about the rhythm, it wasn't just about the dancing, it wasn't just about the movement. She let it be known it must be tied to our genuine resistance. And when we say genuine resistance, we mean our most uncompromising resistance. Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah in a different space saying the same thing Malcolm said. I am not an African because I was born in Africa, but because Africa was born in me. You know, if you don't know Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's history, he comes to Lincoln University. He's born in 1909, the same year as the NAACP. He's born in 1909, the same year that Dr. W. E. Du Bois calls for an Encyclopedia Africana, highlighting our contributions to music, to architecture, to language, to science, to medicine, everything. And with all the people that were rising up, Schomburg in New York, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who patterned his life after Dr. Du Bois, Lorenzo Dow Turner, many of these great researchers, nobody could come together and put together the resources to have that encyclopedia. So after Du Bois' passport is confiscated by the United States at the tender age of 83, Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah tells him, oh man, that encyclopedia, and Du Bois in a grumpy energy says, that's the thing about being this old, you know, people remind you about things you like to forget. He said, I was just going to tell you, if you come to Africa, we'll, uh, you know, we'll bankroll the project. So it took someone born in 1909, the year he called for. Hmm. So these connections are there. And then it is very important, part of the decolonization process is having a wave of humility making a quantum leap over all the arrogance that capitalism encourages and celebrates. Some of you run around here saying my truth instead of saying my interpretation to the truth, my exposure to the truth, because the truth belongs to all of us, not any of you. So Du Bois talks about this attitude. He said, but this Africa relates to your descendants, not to you. Once I thought of you Africans as children, whom we educated Afro-Americans would lead to liberty, I was wrong. 
We could not even lead ourselves, much less you. Today I see you rising under your own leadership, guided by your own brains. That was his solidarity statement to the All-African People's Conference in 1958. Mm. It's in the the back of the book, The World in Africa. Mm. So, and Dr. King echoes a very similar sentiment where he's saying how looking to Africa benefited him immensely. If you've ever read the letter from the Birmingham jail, he says... Africa's anti-colonial resistance is moving like a jet. Our movement against modern-day desegregation is looking like a horse attached to a buggy. Because between 1957 and 1960, 35 nations in Africa got their independence, starting with Ghana. Starting with Ghana. And then, and even though today you have people in Ghana, they got Ghana looking like an HBCU homecoming or looking like um, a picnic at Martha's Vineyard, the fighting spirit will prevail. We should not be discussed, discouraged by that. Let me go through real quickly. I've been organizing since 1990. So I can tell you just some of the things that were going on as we were, I'm 53, the same age Booker T. Washington was when he left us, the same age Emil Cabral was when he left us. Emil Cabral, leader of the um, independence movement in Guinea and Cape Verde, taking up an armed struggle for independence. So in 1990, when we come on the scene and start organizing, Namibia gets its independence after a 24-year armed struggle against German colonialists. Mandela is released that same year. In 1991, Eritrea gains their independence. And Eritrea today is the only nation on the African continent with free education and free health care. And if you want a rallying Pan-African point to Eritrea, the late Ermias Eshidon, better known to you young people as Nipsey Hussle, that's where he was from, and he let it be known publicly what made him leave the Rolling 60 Crips in Los Angeles is when his father sent him to Eritrea and he learned about his people's revolution. So that should be used. Educators all over this country and other parts of this hemisphere should rally around Eritrea. In the past, um, People who consider themselves traditional Africans, people who consider themselves new Africans, we let it be known what our differences were. But we elevated the resistance of our people in a very subtle way. Brother Malcolm so long ago said we have to submerge our differences. But what we learned through time is we must recognize our differences, confront our differences, so our enemies don't manipulate those differences. And what ended up happening? I know um, Dr. Emoja through Cuba work. I know Chokwe Lumumba, who he mentioned, through Libya work. I know Imario Bedelli through Libya work. You see what I, you understand? So these are the things, and I know them through Palestinian work. I know them through the two other liberation movements in what's called South Africa, the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, created on April 6, 1959, because the African National Congress Youth League was tired of the African National Congress avoiding the question of land. So they started their own, organized the most important demonstration in that country, the Sharpeville Kualanga Massacre. Running through the streets saying, Israelethui Africa, the land is ours. How is that different from saying free the land? Not at all. So even though we may take a different approach to certain things, we still fought together. By the time 1992 comes around, the Rodney King rebellions take place. Nationalism turned all the way up. And what our, our generation
Declaration took a position that police terrorism has nothing to do with legislation, nothing to do with policy. It is a culture. The United States invading countries, that's their culture. The United States assassinating leaders they can't impose their will on, that is their culture. So we, we looked at that very carefully. So while we were fighting in the streets dealing with the Rodney Queen question, um, in Mali, the CIA agent Musa Traore, who was used to overthrow Modibo Keita in Mali, he was removed from power. The Eritreans came to power. The two CIA mercenary units, one in, in Mozambique and the other one in Unida, they were neutralized. Nigeria had two military dictators shown the door by the people. So it let our people know that we weren't going to be policed and terrorized anywhere in the world. And our statement to Colin Kaepernick was simple because if you remember, when they first questioned him, his very first press conference, when they talked about the socks of the pigs on him, they said, what about the military? That was the litmus test. And he, he went Yankee Doodle on us just that quickly. And he talked about how safe they keep him and how they protect him. Not his fault. That's what happens when you get this narrative. Because right. he's a product of public schools that sell it. The first one you learn about is Christmas Addicts. Tomorrow, the students here are going to deal with the question of Palestine. You are igniting the spirit of Malcolm X. Malcolm X is the, the first person to aggressively deal with the Zionist question in our community. Even though they didn't show it on Godfather of Harlem, when he was in Egypt slash Kemet, he wrote an article in the Egyptian Gazette called Zionist Logic. And in Libya in 1990, the end of 1990, a Pan-African umbrella came out of there called a Worldwide African Anti-Zionist Front, where Africa felt the time had come to talk about Israel's role in Africa, Israel's crimes against Africa, showing that while Palestinian um, solidarity is the tip of the iceberg, and support the Palestinians we do, there's a picture of Malcolm X with a man named Ahmed Shukari. If you don't know who that is, that's the first chairman of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. If you know about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a, a great sister named Ethel Minor wrote a paper called The Palestinian Problem. We're not, and when you deal with the Palestinian question, when you deal with Zionism, you need to be careful because we have to look at post-Durban anti-Zionism and pre-Durban anti-Zionism. Those who ran to Durban, and we're glad they went, because the Bush administration said they don't want our captivity on the agenda, they don't want reparations on the agenda, they don't want Palestine on the agenda. So many went just because of Bush's big mouth. But the problem with that is you were looking at Zionism still within, within the parameters and the context of the never-ending lovers quarrel between Democrats and Republicans. We don't have that luxury anymore. And, when, and we have our own bones to pick with Israel. When Algeria, after fighting an eight-year liberation struggle, gained its independence, Israel stood up in the United Nations by their lonesome and said, we don't recognize their sovereignty. Did the same thing to Tunisia. Bombed Kemet during the Six-Day War. Supported colonialism in Southern Africa, the last part of Africa to be free from colonial rule. And for those of you who... Um, have a, prefer the amputated narrative of the uh, African experience and you just focus strictly on the United States, here's one for you. The Anti-Defamation League has been funneling police departments to Gaza so they can get training and inspiration from the Israeli Defense Forces. 
So there can be more George Floyds, more Eric Garners, more Deontay Rollins, more Timmy Rice's. So that's how Israel shows their love for you. So, and two years ago, we put out an appeal that Cuba should get restitution for the damages of the blockade. But we had something specific in there. And we want to thank the New African People's Organization for supporting that unconditionally. The National Conference of Black Lawyers for supporting that unconditionally. But this is the point we raised. Israel had observer status at the African Union. It just was suspended three weeks ago. It's just suspended. They need to be expelled. But even more important than that, of the 55 nations we have in Africa, 47 Israeli embassies are on the African continent. They must be run off. They don't belong in Africa. And that's anti-Zionism, a atheist political philosophy that colonizes and commits war against crimes in the name of God. No different than those who came to get your ancestors in the name of Jesus Christ. The only thing worse than committing colonizing people in the name of God is when the colonizer use God as an excuse not to stand the hell up. That's the only thing that's worse. So we um so let's go into practical things because when you come up here, okay, let's just deal with a few things. And many people, when we have the strong nationalist fervor, the strong pan-Africanist fervor, the strong socialist fervor, but guided by nationalism and pan-Africanism, some will say, well, what about other people's history? You shouldn't say that to Africans, because what else did we learn? <laughs> but if you want to do that, that's fine. The Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey said, Africa for the Africans, Ireland for the Irish. And if you go back and look at the papers of the first UNIA World Convention, he got a solidarity statement from Imon de Valera, the leader of the Irish National Liberation Movement. We've supported the Irish since then. And what we see, and what we see, and when you deal with Israel, let me talk uh, electoral politics to you real quickly. Truman breathed life into Israel. The same Truman that started the CIA. The same Truman that Du Bois was kicked out of the NAACP because he refused to endorse Truman. The same Truman that dropped the hydrogen bomb. The same Truman that said that Africa was better off in the hands of the colonials. And if you remember, he desegregated the military because when the March on Washington was first called for in 1941, what was it? The number one demand was um, desegregating the military. So he exploited that. And he looked at it this way. He said, I don't have to worry about these Africans marrying my daughter, living in my neighborhood, I'll send them to Korea, Vietnam, and other places to die, mm. in the ditches. So I don't have to worry about them. Mm. Many people talk about Africa and Asia. Let me just focus on Ho Chi Minh, born the same day as Malcolm X, mm. born the same day as Lorraine Hansberry. Mm. Older though, four for ten, and made one of the most ferocious statements fighting against a military nobody thought he could be. He said, um, you fight against 90 million people. So what I'm trying to tell you is this, that every one of our soldiers, one of your soldiers we kill, you can kill 10 of ours, and even if that's ours, we will slaughter you. So these are things that we understand our relationship to these different developments. And once again, Okay, so let's go back to, I'll go back to certain things. I'll conclude by highlighting work we've done. 
in these areas. Okay, so Cuba. I had the honor of writing the first children's play about Cuba's doctors in outside of Cuba. They're investigating right now to see if any of their playwrights have done it. We did that 11 years ago. Why did we do that? Because Cuba has 4,000 doctors in Africa spread all the way out. You saw what they did with the Ebola crisis. You saw how during the corona pandemic, while everyone else was coming up with conspiracy theories, what did the Henry Reed Medical Brigade do? They sent 57 brigades to 40 nations, several of them African nations. And we fought to push for them to come here. And we got a lot of support for that, and we were very proud of it. And that's an extension of a campaign that many of us are involved in to send children to Cuba to the Latin American School of Medical Sciences to be recipients of a $250,000 scholarship so they can come back to the United States and give the poorest communities that where we are the best medical representation they've ever had. Is that not the work of the National Medical Association? Is that not the work of the Black Nurses Association? But before Booker T. Washington died, he started African Health Week, which became African Health Month. Following up on the success of the, the sociological experiment, the Philadelphia Negro, Du Bois has um, the physique and health of the Negro American. So this is, this is how you continue this work. And you give these Africans a chance to go to Cuba. Um, between 2013 and 2016, you all are kind of young, but how many of y'all know about the hip-hop group, the international acclaimed hip-hop group, Dead Prayers? Ooh. Wow. Um, I'm a, they need to know that, though. So um, look up their music. You'll love their music. Matter of fact, the biggest platform they ever had was the old Dave Chappelle block party movement. Right. And you'll see him perform there. But one of their artists, his name is Mutulu Olubala. And him and I co-produced three albums called The Battle Cry for Cuba and Zimbabwe. And we brought artists from all over the world to, that were against the blockade on Cuba and sanctions on Zimbabwe. And we did three albums, hip-hop, jazz, gospel, reggae, traditional African music. I, I, I presented as a gift to you tonight, and I celebrate. You can go to Battle Cuba Zim, Battle Cuba Z-I-M, dot wordpress dot com and knock yourself out with their music. Um, a few years ago, we organized two concerts, Africa Thanks Cuba, for their work in the arena of health, for the fact that they fought with us side by side in Angola for 14 years, fought with us in Namibia, fought with us in Guinea-Bissau. We just wanted to say thank you. And what happened is we ended up having artists in 17 U.S. cities, 10 African countries, seven Caribbean nations, and uh, four European nations contributed to that project. So when people sit there and talk about what artists don't do and what have you, I don't know where they're looking. And um, in, terms, in terms of, um, and now, updated, we have something. And I wanted to surprise Dr. Emoji with this because my father um, wrote a book about starting the Black Panther Party in London and the Black Power Movement in London, and it came out in 1971. And Black Classic Press, Ta-Nehisi Coates' dad, Paul Coates, put it back out in December. And um, what we want to do, and I, and I wrote the intro, so I, that isn't why you should get it, but since you've gotten an amputated interpretation of the Panther, 
What, do, what exposure have you had to the Panthers in London, the Panthers in Australia, the Panthers in India, the Panthers in Jordan, the Panthers in Syria, the Panthers in India? And the main person responsible for that is Kwame Ture. But for all of you who embrace the Panther symbol, I'm glad to say this here at Cornell, as this is a woman's month. We have created an appeal demanding that Asata Shakur is removed from the United States government's terrorist list, that the $2 million bounty is taken off her head, and Cuba is taken off the United States list of countries they accuse of state-sponsored terrorism. Who are they to call anybody a terrorist? Right. And, 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 um, and, this is being, and so we want support of all the student and youth organizations in this country. So Asani's going to be working with us on that right there. We mentioned, uh, we mentioned the, the Israeli aspects. We have called for um, a, a conversation to take place in Washington, not a debate. We don't do debates. Mature organizers don't do that. Um, so, uh, and we strive to be mature. You be the judge. So we're saying that a debate needs to be, I mean, not a debate, a conversation needs to take place about Zionism. So on one hand, here we are standing with the Palestinians, trying to turn up the Palestinian question as much as we can. But at the same time, letting people know Africa got a bone to pick with Israel too. If those of you who remember Dr. Khalid Muhammad, when he was banished by the U.S. Congress, it was a Zionist congressman named Tom Lantos. That's the same con that was the same congressman that took a naive, articulate senator named Barack Hussein Obama and went before the Foreign Relations Committee and said that sanctions should not be lifted on Zimbabwe until Mugabe was ousted from power. So these are things, these are things that, um, and then in relationship to the police question, you know how you have two relatives that don't get along and you keep them away from each other just for the sake of civility? I would say that that's the best way to describe our efforts to eradicate police terrorism and our efforts to um, eradicate violence we inflict on each other, which is part of blue-collar crime, poor people's crime, uh, desperate people's crime, which we have to eradicate because we can't fight blue-collar crime and fight white-collar crime at the same time. And white-collar crime is what our colonizers do, what the capitalists do, what the conquerors do. So blue-collar crime is a distraction. However, though, um, what ends up happening is whenever we intensify our struggles against the police, someone, some woman, some man, some preacher, some teacher, some regular everyday sister brothers going to say, hey, wait a minute, man, we killed each other too. And we don't answer the question with the right militant verb. Let's go and get the police and military to put the guns in our community. I'm not talking conspiracy theory. You can go back to Selma four years ago. A Caucasian woman that, runs the that ran the evidence locker got busted giving guns to the kids and so on. Mm. It's happened in D.C. It's had the military's involved in it. And we as a community have never mm. asked the National Fraternal Order of Police to make that public so people can realize that these are not isolated incidents of bad judgment. We got... I say this is the time to do that. Mm -hmm. And it should be in concert with these young people who are ready to go to the streets over the assault on our history in the schools. I can only kept bringing up the critical race theory. But is that really anything new? Right. How many professors have been fired from universities for teaching a certain way? Yeah. How many professors have not been allowed to? I have a friend 
beautiful brother, journalist, named Dr. Wilma Leon. He's a, you may know his show on Sirius XM, Inside the Issues with Leon. He's interviewed everybody. And uh, he's a graduate of Hampton University. And he was picked to be the chairman of the political science department. And they went and saw some of his shows in Ukraine. And when he showed up on campus, they turned him away. This is happening now. So it's always happening. And if you are on some of these campuses and you see some of the things that happen, you're either not going to say anything or you're going to find a way to rectify it. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up on Howard University's campus. My father got his doctorate from there. You know what Howard University's shuttle bus says? It says the HBCU with the most Peace Corps recruits. And the difference between the Peace Corps and the CIA is like the difference between the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan. But they got that on their bus. Wow. They have a place on that campus called the Bunch Center. And Charles Rangel started, the late Charles Rangel started a program dealing with this question of more of our people in public policy. Let me uh, make that clear for you. More Condoleezza Rices, more Susan Rices. And if you overlook, and if you look past the, uh, their party affiliations, the only difference between them is complexion and hairstyle. They're the same. They're both the products of Madeleine Albright trained both of them. And Susan Rice's PhD was centered around how to derail Zimbabwe. Condoleezza Rice made Zimbabwe an outpost of tyranny. So I just wanted to, um, I know we will have questions and things of that nature, but it was just important for me to, and this, and um, brother mentioned appeals. The reason that we're doing the Asada Shakur thing in the form of an appeal, you must know your political culture. Those external to our community, they do petitions. We do appeals. Why? Because David Walker did one. This is the 100th anniversary of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey's appeal to white America. And I told his son, Dr. Julius Garvey, that a sort of appeal is going to complement your efforts to exonerate your father posthumously. So we work together. And it's going to complement dealing with Malcolm X. But we're going for the throat of the FBI and CIA. We look at them as criminals. Those who have developed this strategy or made this strategy fashionable of seeking um, premium for human suffering, capitalism pollutes and contaminates the hearts, minds, and soul. That's all we can say about that. And I got to say, has a Malcolm been, I know Malcolm was a pimp when he was Detroit Red, so does, that, so does that mean that he needs to be pimped? He's been pimped by the post office. He's been pimped by Hollywood. I saw Spike Lee on TV the other day. I said, Malcolm's Boyle paid for your front row courtside ticket to the New York Knicks games. And now they're asking for $100 million. Instead of making it a criminal case and creating an atmosphere so we shut the FBI and CIA down because we've reached a conclusion as a community that they no longer should exist, what are we doing? So these are the things that um, if we're talking about anti-imperialism because what you fight against is nice. Step in the right direction. But what are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? And um, like we said, um, at this moment, we're 12% of the population, but we're 23% of the extreme poor, 43% of the homeless. That's in the United States. Africa being primary for us, of the 610 million people on Earth living on $1.90 a day or less, 409 million of them are on the African continent. 
So as neo-colonialist leaders come to the United States to shake their tin cup at Joe Biden, we know what needs to be done. So that's the fight. Define what your relationship to the fight is going to be. But be consistent when you fight. We don't want, we don't want, we don't need any more 26-year-old war veterans talking about what a good organizer you were back in the day. We only three years, four years removed from college. Because the perception is you get active in college, you go into the workforce, you start a family, and everything will be everything. And he, so it shows that whether since we vote Democrat, we damn sure act Republican, right? Because they're the ones that focus on the nuclear family. And on the question of the police, oh, I'm sorry. On the question of the police, what percentage of the mothers of the fallen babies, the fathers of the fallen babies, victim to this genocidal culture of naked police terrorism, what percentage of them were active in that fight before they lost their own children? They didn't know what was going on before they lost their own children? I don't mean to be harsh, but I am saying in terms of direction of our resistance, these are the things that we have to pay attention to. You have Kwame Ture used to say, if you don't join an organization um, working for your people by the very active activity, you're against your people. Mm. Before he passed away, I told him we were going to change that. And he said, to what? I said, we got to get support. I said, some of your best work was in SNCC. There were 300 members on the staff of SNCC, then there were another 3,000 called the Friends of SNCC. And they were just as important to SNCC's work as your 300 members. People must support this movement who aren't going to be frontline fighters. What we end up having in our organization is people who've made a support a dirty word. They don't want to be frontliners, but they hang on, they hang on, they hang on, they hang on, and work falls by the wayside. Every organization goes through that. The names are irrelevant. We're talking about a dynamic. We're talking about a process. So. Take a look at how you can be more supportive. Take a look at how you can increase your involvement. Thank you very much. revolves around like the black belt thesis um, so essentially like I'm in Professor Rickford's class and we've been in a semester-long conversation about black nationhood um, and of course certainly black people uh, do constitute their own oppressed nation um, formed from slavery as Malcolm X put it but at the same time in considering indigeneity not as inhabitancy of a place but a certain relation or framework through which we consider we conceptualize settler, settler colonialism um, I often shudder to consider how we reconcile our desire to not replicate and recreate dynamics of settler colonialism with the very real fact that if the Black Belt nation land is to be free, then indigenous Native American people uh, who were occupying such land prior to new African arrival may also be displaced and dispossessed. So my question is, how do we, in our fight for self-determination as new African people, make sure that we're not recreating the same social logics of Zionism and the America-Liberian uh, colonization of Liberia that have occurred in years past? Good question. You need to have a mic. Um, if you looked at my presentation, 
you saw the history of the Seminole Freedmen and African people. The best traditions of indigenous people and African people are fighting together in solidarity. In fact, we have the tradition amongst our you know, people of African descent of like the African Seminoles who resisted, and then you got the damn Buffalo soldiers. That's usually projected, and that's what he's talking about. You know, that's what's projected during African American History Month. And on the other hand, you have uh, indigenous people who provided us refuge. You had some who enslaved us. You know what I'm saying? So we have to look, number one, at that, that history. And then in our movements today, we need to reach out and be working with not only uh, folks from indigenous nations, First Nations, we also need to uh, reach out to you know, people in the Puerto Rican independence movement. We need to reach out to uh, indigenous Hawaiians. Uh, again, what do we see? Do we see this as being sacred? You know, these 50 states or whatever it is. Is it 48, 50? I don't know. But, <laughs> but do we look at that as sacred or are we imagining a new world, right? And so do we have conversations with each other right now? Uh, the indigenous activists we've talked to don't have a question about that. And in the, in the actual group, the provisional government of Republic of New Africa, in their uh, constitution, Code of Remolja, it talks about indigenous people having a superior claim to any territory. So that's, you know, that's stuff, things that people have been uh, uh, talking about. What most indigenous people, First Nations, are concerned about, if African people have sovereignty, will we behave like white folk? Are we going to treat the environment in the same way? Are we going to treat other human beings in the same way? Will we come with a settler mentality? Of course, our ancestors were not settlers. Right? They were captives. Uh, one uh, uh, First Nations brother that talked to me decades ago when I asked him the question, he said, what would it look like if uh, you and I were both kidnapped in my house? And we got rid of the kidnapper, and then I said, okay, bro, you got to leave. <laughs> you know? So that's, that's really not the mentality, the consciousness of the best of our Traditions, they have been in solidarity. Good question. Glad you asked. Thank you. Um, but it it goes back to the issues that we take on and how how we take them on. Something happened in 2006 that tra changed the trajectory of how the indigenous people are looked. And once again, this becomes a question of us giving the Democrats and the Republicans their definition of America back which is so fascist and white supremacist, it would make Hitler and Mussolini envious if they were still amongst us today. So I say that to say in 2006, as I'm sure you're aware of, an indigenous leader became the president of a country called Bolivia, Evo Morales. If you know his history, he was a coca farmer. And he led a movement by indigenous people in Peru, <coughs> Colombia, and Bolivia. The United States had a plan to spray pesticides on the coca trees. They used coca to help senior citizens with their digestive system, 
their nervous system and bone flexibility. That's their culture. They don't use it like it's used here. So the so-called war on drugs was very fraudulent. So what happened was, after he took power, you began to see Bolivia, Cuba, and Venezuela play a very crucial role in what was called an African-South American summit. And Africans from all over the Americas, Africans on the continent, and the indigenous people of the Americas were meeting to deal with having a common agenda, something, something more modernized, so that we respect each other's paths. Bringing it back to the United States, um, when I, the first organization I, I helped put together, the Pan-African Student Youth Movement, the American Indian Movement International Indian Treaty, Treaty Council was there. And the campaign that they led in this country was against the mascots, the Washington Redskins, the Atlanta Braves, and what have you. And I live in the D.C. area, so people were like, and we had to show our people that emblem that they had was a beheaded Native American. So imagine if, and interestingly enough, if you know the history of the Washington football team, they're the last team in NFL history to let an African play for. So there are different things that through communication, working together, we're able to bridge the gap. The New African People's Organization was part of a historic effort in 1987 where 150 organizations went to Libya boycotting Ronald Reagan's travel ban. The Native Americans were part of them. They gave us their sacred blessing to come back safe. So depending on the issues you take on, that's the value of having principal coalitions, quality coalitions, because trust me, when you're working with people, you end up covering a lot of ground and talking about a lot of things. The most extended conversation I had with this brother about Zimbabwe was doing Cuba work in Atlanta, in the basement of First African Presbyterian Church. You understand? So th this, that's the value of the work. It creates a platform for strategic exchanges, discourse, what have you, what have you. I think another issue that um, we can come together on is if you know the history of Nicaragua, they have the largest African population in Central America because they don't consider the Africans that are half indigenous and half African African. But if you know anything about Freeway Ricky Ross and the South Central crack thing, that was done to maintain aggression against Nicaragua. We have to come together with the Nicaraguans and deal with that particular question. What ends up happening is when we have these appeals, we want them to be as militant as possible. And our people have a tendency to back off sometimes, or the enemy is so intimidated. One of the best examples of that in history, i got to take you back to 1947. Du Bois had an appeal that went before the UN. You know who fought to stop him? Eleanor Roosevelt. And at the same time, she was on the board of directors of the NAACP. So I'm just saying that um, the lane is always open for us to deal with our indigenous sisters and brothers, to tackle issues within North America, but to tackle issues throughout the Americas that benefit us. The as Akineli brilliantly put it, these are spiritual, spirit people so spiritually elevated, they say that the earth is God, because the earth is God's finest creation. So when you take a look at Panama, the Colin Powell bomb, in addition to that, the remains of Agent Orange that weren't used in Vietnam were stashed in Panama, next to the main river where people did their fishing. 
And the United States media support reported that it was a correlation between that and headaches and severe stomach aches that led to death in many cases that those people had to deal with. So there are indigenous people there, there are African people there. So we have, um, when we go through the issues categorically, we can look at how they're relatable to us. So to make a long story short, solidarity is how we deal with that. And we are no strangers to working with each other. Hope that, hope that help. Can we keep the uh, next um, answer? Okay. <laughs> well, also, real quick to answer the question, this is a historical precedent that's set in places like uh, Jamaica, Haiti, uh, Barbados, those are black Caribbean nations, and that was uh, originally inhabited by indigenous people, but no one would call Jamaica a separate colony or Haiti a separate colony. So what's the historical precedent? Uh, hello, my name is Luke Jackson. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Grew up in southwest Atlanta, Georgia, Cascade Road. Um, the SWATs. The SWATs, that's right. <laughs> um, I'm having an identity crisis because I've learned a lot of new information today that challenges what my ancestors have told me. Um, Julian Bond, my Maynard Jackson uh, Jr., former mayor of Atlanta, they were all advocates of SNCC, NAACP, and really the system. Um, to create social change. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned today is that the core of the system is wretched. Mm -hmm. It really is. So how do we how do we move forward using the system or try to manipulate the system to create a new land? Um, a, a new, like a something that was mentioned at the beginning of the presentation about Cop City. That's a great that's a powerful debate that's happening today in Atlanta. And Michael Julian Bond and Andre Dickens are in favor of creating a facility to train police, right. um, and yeah. I want to hear what your thoughts about that as well. So. Yeah, that's a, a it's very hot issue in the city of Atlanta right now, tied to questions of indigenous people, relationship to African people, because a lot of that is around the forest, how we use, and then the original inhabitants of the forest are also challenging. Um, how um, cop city is being dealt with. But, you know, it really gets down to this. And, and Obi eloquently talked about the questions of the police, right? And the cop city venture is basically a move to reinforce the same type of occupation of our communities that's happened historically. Unfortunately, a lot of our of the elected officials side with the business interests that promote further occupation and further strategies of policing that really make our community seem like um, um, you know occupation places. And so, if you think about it, you know you sit, you're from Atlanta. Uh, you remember that 2020 when. The rebellions occurred during that time. And Keisha Lance Bottoms was the uh, mayor at that particular time, right? And Keisha, uh, 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 I guess, responded to the rage of the people. You know, she, uh, y'all might remember there was a Morehouse and Spelman student that were assaulted by the Atlanta Police Department. Yeah. Then right after that, you had Rashad Brooks where Wendy's was burned down. And so, 
And, and whereas I think she was hesitant to move, given the rage of the people and not wanting to lose uh, the black electorate. On the other hand, the white business community in Buckhead right. is, is calling for greater policing. They're afraid of the water boys who are out there selling water in the Buckhead area, things of that nature. So she's trying to placate them. And I don't have a smoking gun, but I believe that's why she didn't run again. So Andre and the others who are in power, I think they're trying to behold to those interests. You know that Buckhead tried to separate. And so um, they're, they, they're, uh, they're beholden to those commercial interests. And this is where many of the cities become, that are black majority cities become like settler colonies. I'm excuse me, neo colonies. Uh, 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 so our, the elected leadership oftentimes acts in the interests of, of, of the white business community. Um, Remainer was first elected. Uh, he was feared by this white business community. And then when he was, you know, he was reelected later on, they tried to develop some uh, compromises, if you will. And so there was challenge, challenges uh, in terms of class. If you look at Maynard's administration, uh, there's a point in his administration where he fires the black garbage workers. There's a, a, in his administration, uh, and Maynard is beloved in Atlanta, right? Uh, but there's a point in his administration during the Atlanta child murders where he arrests people who try to form self-defense groups to protect the community, right? They're feared. Um, and, and there's also questions about in Atlanta child murders if Wayne Williams was absolutely killed. Exactly. Wayne Williams is convicted for killing a 28-year-old and a 21-year-old. They just summarily dismissed the cases of all these children that were killed, not to mention black women who were killed that are, wasn't really documented. So um, the question is, is does Atlanta's black leadership actually act in the interest of black people? This is one of the reasons, and I kind of quickly went through it with, with the People's Assembly in Jackson, Mississippi, is a chance to offer a different model of black politics on a local level, if you will. In Chokwe Lumumba's, when he was elected to city council, the People's Assembly developed his policy. That means the residents for him, his community, actually developed his policy. And he actually had to go and struggle with the community even when he thought some members of the community were going to the right. And so, um, but it's a new way to empower folks to develop a grassroots consciousness, but also to keep these local officials uh, accountable. And when they're not, the People's Assembly can be an opposition force for black people. So it's a different model that we have to look at in terms of if you're going to be in local government. And I know uh, his son had this question. I remember asking his son, did you want to actually run for mayor in a city? And I'm sorry, Bryce, for going, uh, for going too long. but. Did he want to run because this, the things we see with Jackson now, he knew beforehand. You know, he knew beforehand. So I said, you want to inherit that? And his answer was, do I want to leave my people to fight alone without somebody in that office who's going to fight in their interests? And so we have to, you know, look at occupying this. And make, this gets to your question of using these places as vehicles for struggle 
for the community, for the masses of our people, as opposed to continuing the legacy of representing the corporate interests that control our, these cities, right? So I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll talk longer now. All right, thanks for having me. We can talk later. Um, I think it goes back to what Brother Malcolm eloquently stated, control the politics of our community. I think that people have misinterpreted that. What we have to recognize is there's an age-old sentiment that voting is the most effect is the only outlet of political expression. If you say it's the most effective outlet, we can intelligently and objectively discuss that. Right. But if you give the impression it's the only, right. but with that being said, um, we have to, um, it's a question of ingenuity and creativity to engage every the full spectrum in our community. Bryce mentioned something um, in passing. Um, last year, we got Johnny Ford of the World Conference of Mayors to draft a resolution called the Normalized Relations with Cuba. We got Malik Sanders, Malika Sanders Fortier, who took her, her um, father's seat. He was the longest um, state um, senator in the poorest district in Alabama, the 23rd district. She wrote a letter to the National Conference of Black Staff Legislators calling for normalized relations with Cuba. And they're overshadowed by the Congressional Black Caucus, but there's 7,000 state legislators that look like you and me. So it's a question of engaging them. One of my proudest diplomatic achievements is um, I can only try his best to get a meeting with um, Chokwe for us to do something that the mayor of Newark, Raz Baraka, did. He's the only mayor to do it thus far. During the corona pandemic, he allowed his Health and Human Services Division to have a Zoom meeting with the Cuban Ministry of Public Health. And they compared notes on corona, they compared notes on diabetes, and they compared notes on cancer. They have been, in the last three years, about 30, 25 city councils that have passed legislation for normalized relations with Cuba. That's our work, you understand? So when people, because that's one thing, especially when you're considered on the far left, like we are, we're proud of that. People are gonna come to you. How you work with elected officials, how you work with the church, how you work with the artists, and the, mo and the moment that we can give verifiable examples of that, we show them that we, regardless of where you are in the spectrum, that's not important. How effective, how disciplined, and how diligent you are as an organizer is what counts. Kwame mm -hmm. um, Ture used to say to us, he used to have these crazy quotes. He would talk about in Baton Rouge, the people say, the rougher the water, the stronger, no, yeah. He had the rougher the water, the stronger the swimmer. They would say that in the Caribbean. And he said, at Baton Rouge, we would say, if you see me fighting a bear, pour honey on me, I'm going to need your help. <laughs> so one of the most beautiful characteristics of history is the challenges that it imposes. So we end up locking horns with the Black Caucus on the regular. Another time him and I were together is when they, su they supported an initiative to extradite Asada Shakur. Right. And we were like, hey. And they said, Oh, um, we didn't know Asada Shakur and Joanne Chesimard were the same person. Right, exactly. You understand? So once we sat down with them and said, no, you can't do that. At the same time in Durban, when everybody was talking about reparations, 2001, the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act was initiated by the Bush administration. It was pushed through Congress by Donald Payne, 
Congressional Black Caucus member, considered the expert in Africa, and his Republican counterpart, Christopher Smith. Not one Congressional Black Caucus member voted against those sanctions. Cynthia McKinney abstained. Corin Brown of Florida abstained. Stephanie Tubbs-Jones abstained. Bobby Rush, the second recruit of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Chicago, abstained. Carolyn Kilpatrick, the mother of Kwame Kilpatrick, abstained. And we said, you ain't no different than the white folks that used to be at the lynch parties that didn't burn us, didn't kick us, but stood out there the whole time. But the fact that not one congressional black caucus member, and think about this, if you read Colin Powell's autobiography, he talks about going to Mandela's inauguration playing spades with CBC members, and Ron Dellums comes up to him and said, if you switch parties, we can make you the first president that looks like us. This is 94. He said, I won't betray Reagan. Mm -hmm. But the point is, they were going to Mandela's inauguration. They just had to be there. But the only thing that separates what's called South Africa and Zimbabwe is a river called the Limpopo River. And Mandela, I challenge you to find any speech he ever gave that talks about land. He never did. But the point is, Zimbabwe takes the land. 70% of the most agriculturally resourceful land gives it to 350,000 Zimbabwean families. And the Congressional Black Caucus, at the same time where they're shouting reparations, go against that? But if we make the correlations and we make the connections, we can deal with them. Hope that answers the question. Thank you. So thank you all. Again, I want to acknowledge my friend. I wish I was in the shade.